you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. LAist Studios. I had other friends in um, in Hollywood. One of them, a very close friend, a, a girl named Saki, who was a, a big chum. We were in, in art school together and so forth. This is Lillian Wonderman, the first wife of Frank Molina. We heard from her in a previous episode. This is from an interview I did with her in December 1999. She and her mother were politically involved, same way that I was. One day I had a call, I was home, the Katya I just mentioned. Katya was a German scientist at Caltech who was friends with Lillian. Calls me, or called the house, and said, Lillian, get out of there as fast as you can, the FBI is coming. I can't tell you anymore, and hung up. She took a terrible chance in calling me. And uh, Frank was away, I believe. I think he was on another one of his trips. That's another thing. He was always gone. He was never home. Lillian puts down the phone. It's 1945. Her heart's pounding at this point because she has serious reasons to be afraid. And I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, there are two cartons of books and material upstairs, Marxist literature. And I thought, boy, when they come in here and they find this stuff, this is just going to be a mess. I went upstairs. I knew that they were in a box because Frank had kind of put them away. I took these things, I put them in the car, I drove away. Like I said, her fear is by no means irrational. The first entry in Frank Molina's FBI file is dated November 1942. It's the start of an investigation that will cross state lines, cross countries, and eventually reach a frenzy point. It's really hard to know how much people within Unit 122 of the Communist Party suspected that they were being followed by the FBI. That's Fraser MacDonald, lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and author of Escape from Earth, A Secret History of the Space Rocket. Again, Professional Unit 122 was partly a simple discussion group, a Marx and Lenin reading club for engineering students at Caltech. At the same time, it was also a legitimate cell of the Pasadena section of the Communist Party. And guys like Frank Molina, Jack Parsons, and Chen Shu Shen were occasional attendees who probably didn't have a clue the kind of trouble they were creating for themselves. The FBI records show that their interest in this group goes back to as early as 1942. And I honestly think none of these people had any idea at that stage that their activities were being noted 
their movements were being recorded, number plates, you know, jotted down and so on. I don't think they had any inkling. Well, Molina would know now, thanks to a phone call telling his wife to flee her home as fast as possible. Here's Lillian again. And then I thought, now what am I going to do with these Yeah. Driving around with, I think, you can't drop them in a canyon somewhere. Somebody's going to find them. One of these books probably has a name in it, or I can't do that. The reason I'm telling you about Saki, my friend who lived in the Hollywood Hills, uh, she lived in one of the canyons in Hollywood with her mother. And I'm thinking to myself, the only people I can go to is to Saki and Helen, her mother. And I went there and I told them, I said, I've got to get rid of this. I don't know what to do with it. And they said, okay, bring it out and back. So we took it out and back and they built a bonfire and we burned the damn books. Because I thought no matter where they are, somebody's going to find them, you know, and, and make problems. So this took hours. I drove back to our house in Pasadena. When I got there, the, the house had been thoroughly ransacked, but I mean completely. Uh, yeah, what they found there, I don't know. They may have found some correspondence of Frank's or something. They certainly didn't find books, that's for sure. For a moment, they're safe. She burned the books, any stuff related to communism, all traces wiped so her husband, Frank Molina, can continue his valuable work, which at this point and going forward is of extreme value to the U.S. government. What Lillian doesn't know, though, what she and Frank can't know yet, is that a bigger fire is only just getting started. This is season one of L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. For all their talk about rockets and reaching the moon, the Suicide Squad have made steps in the right direction, but they're still nowhere close to achieving that goal. Actually, almost all of the work from the Halloween test of 1936 all the way up to 1944 did not involve firing actual rockets. Like the the idea of, of um, sending a rocket vehicle up into the upper atmosphere was a very distant prospect. That's Fraser again. In fact, by 1945, the squad has disbanded. Parsons and Foreman have been ousted from Aerojet, and Chen is in Germany investigating the scientist behind the V-2 rocket. 
It's Molina who witnesses the squad's dreams become a reality, with a little help from the military, of course. First of all, the Air Corps and then the U.S. Army, they started to develop what we might think of as actual rockets, vehicles for traveling into, into high altitude. The plan was for JPL to develop a series of high-altitude rockets for the military's long-range missile program. They would develop the rockets in stages and name each iteration after a military rank, starting with the private and then the corporal. But before that, Molina suggested they have an interim vehicle, what he called a sounding rocket, which was a vehicle that wasn't designed as a weapon, but was purely to gather data about the upper atmosphere and to test the basics of the rocket system. The WAC corporal is so-called because it's the initials stand for without attitude control. In other words, without any kind of guidance system. So Molina goes out to White Sands, a military testing area in New Mexico, to see if this WAC corporal has what it takes to break through the atmosphere. And the tests are successful, very successful. They'd aimed for it to reach an altitude of about 30 kilometers, and it reaches 73 kilometers. The WAC Corporal is America's first successful rocket. It's the first vehicle that reaches an extreme altitude. The difficult thing to understand is that space does not, at this stage, have a boundary. Now, now, now we think of boundary space as the Kármán line at 100 kilometers, right? That was not agreed until about 1963. Robert Goddard, the inventor, the guy credited with building the world's first liquid-fueled rocket, said the whole purpose of rocketry is to reach extreme altitudes, heights that birds can't reach, balloons can't reach, James and the Giant Peach can't reach. Now, none of Goddard's rockets go more than a mile or so off the ground. The WAC Corporal, on the other hand, reaches what we call near space. And according to Frazier, that success yields an entirely different problem. The WAC Corporal is this interim vehicle for what becomes the Corporal missile, which is essentially the world's first nuclear missile. It's really the progenitor of contemporary weapons of mass destruction. Um, and that was something that made Frank Molina deeply uncomfortable that his vehicle for civilian science was going to be used as the likely vehicle for a nuclear warhead. And Molina catches a glimpse of this destruction even before the corporal test. When he's on the plane flying out to White Sands, Molina flies over the Trinity test site. Trinity was the code name of the first detonation of a nuclear weapon, July 16th. 1945. This was part of Robert Oppenheimer's Manhattan Project. You've seen the pictures. The giant fireball, the mushroom cloud. The world was never the same. So Molina sees the testing site, and he knows exactly what took place there. It's now a wasteland, a giant ink spot. And he just has this moment of realization that, that that is the future. Like, he has created a vehicle for this kind of destruction. And this extraordinary paradox that, yes, here he is, Frank Molina, Communist Party member, who's really the main architect of the missile. And he's looking down on the work of his colleague and friend, J. Robin Oppenheimer, who also was sometimes at the same Communist Party meetings. 
And here they were, you know, they were, they were looking at the fusion of the rocket and the bomb. And, you know, the rest of the 20th century would live under the shadow of this totem, of the nuclear missile that, that was drawn from both of their work. On the morning of August 6, 1945, that nightmare became real. The U.S. dropped an atom bomb on Hiroshima. Then three days later, they dropped another atom bomb on Nagasaki. Over 200,000 people died. A week after the bombings, Molina had asked for a leave of absence from Caltech. And witnessing this devastation at Trinity Test Site only cemented his decision to redirect his life and his work. Perhaps Molina was horrified at the possibility of this bomb being attached to one of his rockets. I left in 1946, Christmas time, uh, because I had an offer of a job at UNESCO in Paris. And I, I left on a two-year leave of absence. This is Molina himself from a conversation he had with historian Mary Terrall in 1978. UNESCO is the newly established United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And I left with rather great difficulties because neither uh, Caltech wanted me to go and the military didn't want me to go. I talked to Carmen about it, of course. Theodore von Karman, another founder of JPL, essentially the Suicide Squad's benefactor and guiding light. He says, you know, I think you're right. Uh, he said, if I was your age, I think I would do something like that, too. Because I was caught up in the wave uh, at the end of the war of hateful war and uh, fear of the, uh, the development of the atom bomb and seeing that the things we had been developing for space exploration being used for military purposes. I was getting more and more disturbed and I would break into cold sweats. I mean, you know, I just hated the idea uh, of, say, uh, planning to use uh, all this for bombarding um, people. So there's no doubt that played a heavy role. I felt that the Second World War was unavoidable and uh, that uh, Nazism and fascism and crazy ideas of Hitler had to be defeated. But I was, many of us hoped at the end of the Second World War that there was a chance, maybe through something like the United Nations, to put some kind of a control on the sovereign states to put a stop to war, at least between industrialized countries. So Molina leaves the aerospace world he helped create. In fact, he soon leaves the United States altogether. And that's partly because the United States decides to declare war on people like him. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how from Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. 
Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Ever since he was a kid, Molina did not want to work for the military. This is a guy whose high school yearbook quote was, I follow the dictates of my own conscience. He's a peacemaker who wants to avoid World War III. But with each step towards pursuing his rocket dream, from jet-assisted takeoff engines to the WAC corporal, Molina's work at JPL becomes more and more entwined with the military. It's inescapable. The end of the war comes along and Molina wants JPL to return to kind of basic research, academic research. But the Army says like, hey, we want you to keep going doing work for us. This is Peter Westwick. We heard from Peter previously. He's the author of Into the Black, JPL and the American Space Program, 1976 to 2004. Molina kind of balks a little bit, but the Caltech trustees say, no, let's go ahead and do it. You know, public service and all that stuff. Oh, and by the way, we're getting all this overhead coming in from these army contracts, which are then plowing into the campus budget. Kind of useful to have that revenue stream. Remember, there isn't private funding for rocket research at the time. Working with the army is basically Molina's only option, but it also proves his undoing. As a consequence, it's not basic academic research, it's classified military research. And almost everybody at JPL has a security clearance. What a security clearance means is you have to go through this very intrusive investigation by the U.S. government to make sure that you are not a security risk, quote-unquote, which means they go in and do this very intrusive investigation of your personal life, your financial life, uh, your sexual orientation, um, because to be other than heterosexual at the time was you were deemed a security risk. And then once you're inside this regime, you develop a kind of pattern of self-surveillance, of making sure that you are not doing or saying anything that would, you know, undermine your status within this security regime. And all of this is around an executive order that permits an investigation into the lives of government employees. That's Fraser McDonald again. He's talking about Executive Order 9835, which President Truman introduced in 1947 an executive order that completely transforms the landscape and means that any government employee who suspects another government employee can essentially request some sort of loyalty review and that some investigation that can reveal anything on file about any of these people. It's not just about treason. Even having sympathy for communists was enough to make you a suspect. And this is all to serve the FBI's greater goal uncovering spy rings within government institutions. But the reality is there's very little to see. There are thousands of field investigations and almost no evidence that anyone is involved in espionage. So what starts to happen is something else, which is that the FBI, although they're concerned about espionage, they're more than happy to go after 
people who have concealed previous membership of the Communist Party. And so what happens is they use this kind of procedural trap uh, a personnel security questionnaire goes around the lab. Can you please fill out this questionnaire? It's necessary for, you know, HR or whatever. And this is, you know, bear trap right at the heart of this questionnaire, which asks, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And for those who have been, they are in an impossible position. If they say yes, well, they absolutely lose their job, lose the security clearances. That's the absolute end of all of their scientific career, blacklisted. And if they say no, then they are vulnerable to a perjury prosecution, which is precisely what happened. As Fraser explained, there's really no good outcome. Not if you'd been the kind of high-minded 20-something graduate student who enjoyed the occasional night out of music and wine and debate with friends. Now, because Molina is about to leave JPL for his new job in Paris, the FBI can't trap him with this questionnaire yet but his other colleagues at JPL aren't so lucky. So the interesting thing about JPL after Frank Molina had left it is it still bears his imprint. The people there are many of the people he, he worked with, he liked or he hired. And so this is a strange thing where, yes, someone like Sidney Weinbaum brought Frank Molina into the Communist Party, but Molina brought Sidney Weinbaum into JPL, right? And that makes the, a little group of engineers at JPL nervous about the increasing activity, particularly of the FBI. We heard about Weinbaum in our previous Molina episode. He's the Caltech mathematician, friend of Molina and Chen, who organized the meetings for Unit 122. The crunch time for these JPL scientists arrived in January 1949, when the then director of JPL, Louis Dunn, which Frank had essentially recommended for the post, walked into an FBI office and said, I think this is spy ring at JPL. And that was just an absolute incendiary moment, which created panic among um, both the FBI, obviously, and among, ultimately, among some of the engineers. And it initiated a series of investigations of uh, some of the JPL engineers. And so the FBI discovered that there had been concerns about the loss of blueprints for the WAC corporal as early as 1945 and 1946. Louis Dunn basically told them that much and said, look, there's a possibility that somebody has leaked these blueprints and that somebody, Louis Dunn was pretty clear, that somebody might be Frank Molina. Now there's no evidence, there's no evidence of espionage, but what Louis Dunn does is that he starts his own investigation. Because at this point, Dunn thinks that even though Molina has left JPL, someone else might be leaking information to Molina. He starts eavesdropping on his colleagues, he starts inspecting the documents that Sidney Weinbaum is withdrawing from the JPL library and starts getting worried that Weinbaum's reading is too diverse to be explained by any ordinary intellectual curiosity. It must be something sinister. Well, it wasn't anything sinister. There's no evidence that Weinbaum was a spy. 
But Wayne Brown really was a very interested, wide-ranging polymath engineer. I mean, it's not surprising he was reading all sorts of things because that's how his brain worked, right? That's what that's where his curiosity lay. And it's notable that Louis Dunn, I'm going to be frank here, a racist white South African, exclusively pointed the finger at people who were either Jewish or Chinese, or in one case, a woman. Like, it was just absolutely, I think, clear that his suspicions of a problem of loyalty always fell on people who he was racially uncomfortable with, prejudiced against. Unfortunately, this story is all too familiar for marginalized groups in America. But the FBI isn't satisfied. They still suspect Molina of leaking the corporal blueprints, so they keep investigating his friends back home. I want you to hear some testimony, some rather explosive testimony, from Molina's FBI file, because it contains some accusations from an old gal sit colleague, a Suicide Squad buddy. That colleague's name in the file is redacted. I'll let you be the judge. Redacted declared during the time he was acquainted with Molina, in the 1934-35 period, he found it extremely difficult to maintain harmonious relationships with Molina. He recalled Molina was extremely theoretical, whereas he, Redacted, was practical. He never felt close or friendly towards Molina, advising they were natural-born enemies. I just want to pause for a second and point out, you, a practical fellow, find one of your colleagues to be extremely theoretical. This and the work of building rocket engines that the world has never seen before. And for this, your natural-born enemies? Redacted recalled that there were a number of bull sessions among the inner circle of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory regarding Communist Party ideologies. Further, that Molina endeavored to indoctrinate those around them in communist ideology. Redacted stated Molina was responsible for slowdown in the rocket and jet development through several mediums. He felt Molina, as project engineer, was interested in prolonging the project to increase his personal prestige. Molina was constantly preparing papers and devoted much of his time to a thesis on the subject of jet propulsion. Accordingly, he was inclined to neglect the practical aspects of rocket development for the theoretical aspects of jet and rocket propulsion, according to Redacted. Someone who worked at Galset and felt Molina was too theoretical, the obvious suspect would be Jack Parsons, right? While Parsons himself had attended some of those Unit 122 meetings, And although his relationship with Molina deteriorated over time, would he really refer to him as his natural-born enemy? After investigating the strange happenings at the OTO, the FBI deems Parsons unreliable anyway, which I guess means they do get some things right. Obviously, we know that Jack Parsons was an FBI informant. I kind of get the impression that he was a reluctant FBI informant. We covered that in the last episode. Basically, Parsons at the time had lost his security clearance to work at North American Aviation. Mentally, he was in a dark place. I don't think he took enormous pleasure in ratting on Molina, but he was more than willing to do it to, if it would um, you know, help his own cause. I think Parsons was ultimately quite kind of self-centered individual. 
If it wasn't Parsons, who else would find Molina too theoretical? Certainly not Chen. Chen loved theory. He was, after all, the squad's mathematician. So who else knew about the Unit 122 meetings but wanted nothing to do with them? Who might consider Molina an enemy? I get the impression that Foreman would have delighted to tell the FBI all about Molina, every detail about Foreman's experience of Unit 122 meetings, about their attempted recruitment by Sidney Weinbaum. Ed Foreman, the tinkerer, son of an electrical engineer, one of the original members of the Suicide Squad. I mean, Foreman clearly held long-standing animosity towards Molina. I don't really think that Foreman suffered any ill treatment in any way from from Molina. But I do think that Foreman was always jealous of of Molina's scientific seriousness and always resented the fact that he'd be asking Foreman and Parsons to try out some other propellant combination or do something a different way. And so inevitably, when the FBI start contacting anybody who can tell them about Molina, they contact Foreman, and you kind of get the impression that Foreman is delighted to help in a way that Parsons probably uh, wouldn't have been. And now he's the informant that brings everything crashing down. Foreman's comments to the FBI will basically end Frank Molina's career in aerospace or at the very least prevent him from returning to JPL, the institution he co-founded. Armed with this new evidence from Foreman, J. Edgar Hoover himself pressures the FBI office in Los Angeles to secure an indictment against Molina. A federal judge issues a bench warrant for his arrest. Because Molina is in France, they'll have to get crafty. The State Department gives UNESCO an ultimatum. Fire Molina, or the U.S. will withdraw from the organization. But in the end, it's the Senate that comes out on top. They begin investigating any American U.N. employee who might have communist sympathies. Which means that security questionnaire that Molina evaded at JPL, the one that asks, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? That questionnaire has come back to haunt him. That's next time on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of L.A. Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Aleas Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. 
Thanks to the team at LA Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. LA Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of LA Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.